Let me open with a word of prayer and then we'll get into the teaching for this morning. Holy Father, I do thank you for your great kindness to us in giving us your son Jesus Christ to be the wrath-ending sacrifice for our sins. And I thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit by whose power we have been born again and enabled to see the truth of the gospel and understand who Jesus really is, who you are, as we should. To repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for our salvation. And we ask now, Lord, that you would deepen us in our assurance of salvation together this morning and fill us with your spirit and with understanding. And if there is any believer here this morning struggling with assurance, of salvation. It's my prayer that he or she will walk out of here today strengthened in their faith. I ask these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, I, as you can see, want to take time to address an important doctrine that I, I try to address this periodically. Every so many years, I try to address this topic. Of course, it comes up from time to time anyway when you're teaching through the Bible, and there's plenty of sermons that uh, I hope uh, have helped to grant us deeper assurance of salvation, but every once in a while I like to just focus in on this particular topic because in a, in a sinful world in which we're constantly undergoing a spiritual warfare, assurance of salvation is going to be one of those areas in which we're going to experience attack. And so, I want to focus on that today, the doctrine of a believer's assurance of salvation. But before I get into the biblical discussion of the doctrine, I first want to remind you of the way our statement of faith summarizes the overall biblical teaching. And I have the whole chapter 18 there. In my opinion, this may be the best summary of the Bible's teaching on the matter that I've ever read. Um, in the best succinct statement and if you want the scriptural proofs for all of it, they're in the online version. They have the scriptural proofs there if you want to look that up or, or if you want us to make a printed version available to you of, the, of our statement of faith, just let us know and we can do that. But I'm going to focus in on just reading the first two paragraphs because paragraph two is the one that we're focused on this morning. But I would encourage you to read the whole thing. Um, because it recognizes, for example, and we'll talk about this as we go on, that although a believer can lose his or her assurance of salvation, that's not the same thing as actually losing salvation. It's not the same thing at all. But in the beginning of the, of the statement, it says this, although temporary believers and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and fleshly presumptions of being in the favor of God and state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish. Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. You can see they're just stringing to, together almost some of these word-for-word -word statements from Scripture. Um, but then in, in paragraph 2 it says, this certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, 
but an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel, and also upon the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit unto which promises are made, and on the testimony of the Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, and as a fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and holy. As I said, uh, in my opinion, if you, especially if you go on to read the next two, two paragraphs yourselves later on, you'll see that, that this is a very good summary. But here I just want to focus in on the paragraph two this morning. I want to focus our attention on the three means of assurance that it alludes to there. It says that we have an infallible assurance of faith founded on, one, the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. And those words revealed in the gospel, of course, mean revealed in the teaching about who Christ is and what he's done that we have in the scriptures, right? And then it says also upon, two, the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit into which the promises are made. That's the second thing. And then the third thing it says is the testimony of the Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. There's those three things. And sometimes Reformed theologians have referred to these three biblical teachings as being like a three-legged stool. Uh, with each leg necessary uh, for our complete assurance of salvation. That sometimes we might lean on one leg a little more than another, <laughs> right? But you've got to have all three uh, legs of this stool for the stool to stand and, and to be assured of salvation. And so it's these three foundations of assurance that I want to demonstrate from Scripture this morning under, under my own headings that you'll have there uh, on the back side here of your insert. Uh, first, I want to focus on the promises given to us by the Holy Spirit in the Word. Secondly, the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our lives. And then thirdly, the witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So that first heading here is the promises given to us by the Holy Spirit in the Word. Uh, there are many promises in Scripture assuring believers that they are secure in their salvation because of the gracious work of Christ on their behalf. And, and that's the focus of that first leg in, in our confession of faith there. And I just want to look at some example passages that do this and focus on how they do it. And the first one is in John chapter 6, and three of these will be from John. Um, this is a doctrine that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ taught pretty directly uh, in his word. Um, John 6, beginning in verse 37, our Lord Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And uh, here we, we have the doctrine of election, is what he's talking about. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So the Father has some he gives to the Son. They're going to come to the Son. And there's absolutely no possibility the Son will not accept them. Right? For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So what he's saying is, everyone that's been given to him by the Father, he will accept 
He will be their savior. He will save them. <laughs> uh, and he will raise them up at the last day. There's no possibility that that will not happen. He says, anyone who believes in him, he says, will be raised up at the last day. Later on in verse 47 of John 6, he says this, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And he uses the present tense there on purpose. Now, he also teaches, he's already spoken of the resurrection, being raised up at the last day. Clearly, he's assuming our bodies are going to die, right, still. And we're not fully saved until the resurrection when our bodies are raised from the dead. That's the teaching of Scripture. But he says here quite plainly, if you're trusting in Christ as your Savior, you have everlasting life now. Well, if the body dies, then he must be talking about spiritual life. So, spiritually, we will never die, even though our bodies will die and need to be raised up. But Jesus says, that will happen. That will happen. He's guaranteeing that. So these are, these are very assuring words of Scripture, that if you're trusting in Christ as your Savior, you actually have everlasting life now and are assured that your body will be raised up, as Jesus said at the last day. He's guaranteeing it here in this passage. Later on in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 24, we're told that the Jews surrounded him and, and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The issue isn't whether or not he's been clear about who he is. The issue is whether or not they're accepting it, right? And then he says, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. In the language of John chapter 6, they hadn't been given to him by the Father, apparently. Because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. And then he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And here he means, obviously, in their purpose and protection of the sheep and in their ability to keep the sheep. The father grants him these sheep. These sheep hear his voice and recognize him as their shepherd <laughs> and put their faith in him. He gives them everlasting life. And no one and nothing can separate them from Christ, who is their savior. He's teaching that we're secure because he keeps us secure. Because salvation doesn't depend on our ability to keep ourselves in the faith, but on the ability of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to keep us in the faith. And he's promising to do that. What a wonderful ground of assurance. And of course then, we have a passage like Romans 8, 28 through 30, and there, and there are many passages we could read. I've just given you a selection here. Uh, Romans 28 uh, through 38, 28 through 30 says this, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew. Those would be the ones, right, that he's going to give to the Son who are going to be his sheep, right? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 
that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, earlier in the passage in Romans 8, he says, he speaks of glorification in the future. Uh, he says that we will be glorified together with Christ if indeed we also suffer with him, right? So glorification is something future at the time Paul writes this for all believers because it happens at the last day. It's, it, he'll, he'll go on to say that uh, this will happen at the resurrection. But he speaks of it in the past tense here in the same way that he's spoken of everything else because in the mind of God, it's a certainty. This is what's going to happen. It's a done deal. If you're trusting in Christ and you've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, you are going to be glorified. That's it. That's part of the plan. And the whole plan is going to come to pass because God is the author of it from beginning to end. Everyone is foreknown. He said, is predestined. And all those who are foreknown and predestined, he says, are called. And all those who are foreknown and predestined and called are justified. And all of those who are foreknown, predestined, and called and justified are glorified. It's a very reassuring passage. So those are just a few of the passages that teach us plainly that God promises to preserve believers in the faith and to finally save them. And I think these promises are a healing balm for believers who may struggle with assurance for any number of reasons. For example, some believers who struggle with assurance uh, do so because they wrongly think that they can lose their salvation. and they, they can take great comfort from these promises, which indicate that this is an impossibility. But those are also typically believers who think that the reason they're saved is something they did, which makes you question whether or not they're true believers. But they slip into that thinking. And, and so they realize, I'm fickle. And if it all depends on my faith, I realize how weak my faith is. I'm doomed if it all depends on my faith. But the Bible doesn't say that it depends on our faith. It says it depends on God's ability to keep us. And as Paul says in Ephesians 2, faith is a gift of God anyway. We're saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them from beginning to end this is something that God does believers who struggle with assurance because they battle some besetting sin may also take great comfort in these promises because they remind us that God is powerful to overcome these sins often a believer who's struggling with assurance has some besetting sin in his or her life that they're struggling to overcome and they're assuming because of that that they may not be a true believer and they're questioning their faith and they're questioning whether you know they're truly saved. But the Bible teaches us that believers can struggle with sin in their lives and do struggle with sin in their lives. That doesn't mean that they have ceased believing in Jesus. And it certainly doesn't mean that God isn't able to overcome these sins and to finally save them. And it may be that you have a sin that you battle your whole life. I can name one that every one of us in this room ha has that is a besetting sin. 
I'm going to reveal your heart to you right now. Each one of you has a besetting sin, and I have the same one. It's the root sin that's at the bottom of every single other sin. Pride. And if you think, well, I don't battle with that, you just prove that you do. Right? We all have it. We're all going to battle it till the day we die. Does it mean we're not believers? Of course it doesn't mean that. The issue is whether or not you're really battling it. Are you still in the fight? Because <laughs> true believers are always still in the fight, right? Uh, more on that a little later. Believers who struggle with assurance because they don't seem to be as joyful as other Christians may also take great comfort in these promises because they remind us that our salvation ultimately depends on Christ's work on our behalf and not on anything we can be or do. I used to run into this. I remember when I was first saved, I went through, of course, I grew up going through depression a lot in my life, but when I was first saved, those first three years of Bible college were the, first, the worst three years of depression I've ever experienced in my whole life. It was horrible. I thought I was going to die from it. That's how bad it was. And I would wake up in the morning and think, surely today is the day I'm going to die of a broken heart. I do not see how I can survive like this. I didn't want to kill myself. I just didn't think I would live. That's a pretty serious depression, right? You think it's going to kill you. And I believed that when I would wake up and think that. And I would look around at other Christians who seem to have so much joy. And I would wonder, am I a true Christian? Because I don't seem to have what they have. And of course, through this experience, God showed me that there's a joy you can have even in the midst of depression. And a peace that passes understanding that you can get even in the midst of a terrible pit of depression like that. And that although I was going through that, he was keeping me through it in spite of myself. And I was filled with doubts in those days. Filled with doubts. As I just said, I was questioning my salvation. Because I didn't seem to look like or act like other Christians in this way. They seemed happy, and I didn't. So was I a true Christian? And then it dawned on me that for some reason I couldn't stop believing. No matter how bad things got, I just couldn't stop believing. And then it dawned on me there has to be a reason for that. That faith had to come from somewhere other than me. I couldn't possibly be the author of it. I know in my own strength that faith would have been gone already. And then I looked into the Word and I said, Ah, oh, it's the gift of God. That's why it's still there. It, it's... it's from God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's still there. That's why I haven't quit yet when I feel like quitting so much. That's why I'm believing in spite of all my doubts. I'm still believing. How is that? It's a miracle. It's the work of the Holy Spirit is how it was. And then there was a deeper joy and peace than I ever would have known had I not gone through the depression. I would never have come to that. See, we never see God more clearly or his work in us more clearly than when we come to the end of ourselves. And some of you might be in that process right now. I tell you this story from my own experience to encourage you. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. If you're still believing in spite of yourself, kind of like I was, 
then just think about who must be the author of that. It certainly isn't the devil. He does, he's trying to destroy your faith. It's the Holy Spirit that's giving you that faith. Take heart. It's proving you're real, what you're going through. Not to God. He knows. It's proving it to you. This is what trials are about. That turned into a whole other sermon right there. But just keep in mind that at the end of the day, it depends on his promises and looking to his word and submitting everything we're going through to him and evaluating everything that's happening to us in light of his word instead of our own thinking. That's what pulled me out of the pit. And it's what will pull you out of the pit too. Sadly, there are some Christians that are going to have to battle depression their whole lives. I've gotten a lot of relief from it, but a lot of Christians will have to go through that. But it's such a wonderful opportunity that some other people just don't get. Because as I said, we never see God more clearly. We never see his work in us more clearly than when we come to the end of ourselves. And if there's one thing that will bring you there, it's depression. So make friends with it. It's good for you. It's been, it's been the best friend I've ever had in my life. Depression. It's God's pal that helped me see that I'm a genuine believer. Anyway, not a, I didn't want to make this about depression, but anyway, hopefully, if you're struggling with that, those words are some help to you. Look to the word of God, not to how you feel. You're not a good barometer of what's going on in you. His word will tell you the truth. So the promises of God are what we need. That's one ground given to us by the Spirit. Secondly, there's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And what a wonderful thing that is. Now, there are many passages that teach that the Holy Spirit sanctifies true believers and that they will, therefore, persevere in the faith and show the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Some more, some less. Sometimes I do it better one day than another, right? <laughs> uh, these things have been flowing the life of a believer, sadly. But, but we can see this clearly implied, for example, in the very passage we just read in Romans 8.30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And what, when Paul indicates that our final glorification is a guaranteed thing, he's also saying that sanctification will necessarily take place since glorification is the end result of the Spirit's sanctifying work. But consider also what he said earlier in chapter 6, verse 22 of Romans. But now, having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of God. You have your fruit to holiness, or to sanctification, as it's put in the ESV and the New American Standard, and the end, everlasting life. So those who have been given everlasting life will also bear the fruit of sanctification in their lives. Right? And this is what Paul elsewhere calls the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, to 24, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
So those who belong to Christ will also possess the fruit of the Spirit. This means that the fruit of the Spirit is evidence that we are true believers and therefore is a basis of assurance. If you see yourself changing, of being conformed more and more to the image of Christ, because that's the plan we read about in Romans 8, well, the fruit of the Spirit, that's what that's about, right? Uh, being, becoming more like Jesus in many, in many ways. If you see these things happening in your life, you know where they're coming from. They're coming from the Spirit. Now, Christians can fake some of these things for a little while. There are people that fake these things for a little while, but not for long. Genuine gentleness can't be faked for long. <laughs> or patience, or goodness, or kindness, or any of these things. There's an, another interesting passage in Hebrews 3.14 where he says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. This is, a, I think, a key verse in Hebrews that most people forget to read before they say, read Hebrews 6, and that's a bad idea. This is, a, this is an important verse. I think D.A. Carson accurately assesses the teaching of this verse when he writes this in a book called Exegetical Fallacies. He writes this, We have become, past presence, I would argue, uh, tense rather, a past reference, a past tense, I would argue, he says, we have become partakers of Christ in the past. If we now, in the present, hold firmly to the confidence we had at the first. It follows from this that although perseverance is mandated, it is also the evidence of what has taken place in the past. In other words, if we're holding fast to Christ now, that's evidence that we have in the past become partakers, right? He goes on to say, put another way, perseverance becomes one of the essential ingredients of what it means to be a Christian, of what a partaker of Christ is and does. If persevering shows that we have already come to share in Christ, it can only be because sharing in Christ has perseverance for its inevitable fruit. I think he's dead on there. That's exactly the meaning of that verse. Perseverance in faith is an indication that one is indeed a true partaker of Christ. And you'll see that idea later on in the book of Hebrews, if you go read the whole thing. In fact, there's a whole chapter 11 that's proof of that idea, right? As we persevere in faith, then, we can also grow in our assurance of salvation. Because persevering in the faith is one evidence of a true believer. Later on in, in uh, Hebrews 10, 14, the author says, For by one offering he, our Lord Jesus, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. This means that if we're experiencing the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our lives, then we are among those who have been perfected forever through the atoning work of Christ. So this experiencing sanctification is evidence that you're a true believer. The devil's not trying to sanctify people, you know. The Holy Spirit does that. And if we're experiencing that, we're among those who may have assurance that our ultimate salvation is secure. Remember, because when God saves somebody, he does it right. That's the point of all those passages. He doesn't save you halfway, partially. He saves you fully. 
He gets you to the end. He promises to do that. Let's consider just a couple more examples from the first epistle of John, a book which John says that he wrote, uh, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. That's the reason he gave for writing it in chapter five, writing it, excuse me, in chapter five, verse thirteen. In other words, the book is largely about assurance, giving believers assurance of their salvation. But notice the means of assurance that is stressed by him. I'll give you a couple of examples. In 1 John 2, beginning in verse 3 and going through verse 5, John writes this. Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, and he's using the present tense there, if we're keeping his commandments. Now John does something interesting in the, in the epistle to John. He likes, he likes to do things with tenses. And John likes to use a present tense to talk about a manner of life or a habitual lifestyle. Not that we live out perfectly, that we, but that we live out consistently. Right? And so he's saying, we, by this we know that we know him. If we're keeping his commandments, if, if that's what our life is about, if that's how we're living our lives in pursuit of keeping his commandments, that's the idea. That's evidence that we really do know him in, in the context of all, as our Lord and Savior, in a personal relationship with him as our Savior, right? He who says, I know him, and does not keep, or is not keeping his commandments, in other words, their pattern of life is not to follow his commandments. That person's a liar, and the truth is not in him. It's not that that person doesn't sometimes follow a command of, of Jesus. It's that if you look at that person's life, he generally just doesn't follow Jesus at all, yet claims to know him. And then you look at another person that, though he doesn't do it perfectly, he seeks to follow Jesus in his life. Well, that person, his claim is an accurate claim. You can tell, in other words, when you look at people and they're making claims to be believers, just watch their life. John is saying, and you'll know the true from the false. That's the idea. And you'll know whether you're true or false. He says, but whoever is keeping his word, because that's what it means to keep his commandment, and that's the present tense again, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Now we know that John does not believe that we do this perfectly, keep his word, because he also makes it clear that if we say we have no sin, we're lying in the truth that in us. So, uh, and then he reminds us that we have an advocate with the Father who will forgive our sins. Yes, believers are going to sin. And if they say they don't, then they're lying too. But the point is, what, what characterizes your life? John is saying. What's your life about? When people look at you, when you look at yourself, what do you see? Someone who's trying to keep the commands of God, and though he fails... He still keeps the commands of God. And when he fails, he looks to Jesus for forgiveness and trusts in him even more. Or do you look at somebody that says, yeah, I'm a believer and doesn't care at all to follow the word of Jesus? That person is lying. By the way, it's a good way to test presidential candidates when they claim to be Christians. <laughs> look at their lives. We've had a few that I've said to my fellow believers, whatever else that person is, he's not a Christian. Right? 
1 John 3.10 says this, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice, there's that present tense again, righteousness, is not of God, nor is he who does not love, there's that present tense again, his brother. Someone who's not consistently loving his brother, someone who's not consistently, although not perfectly, practicing righteousness, is not a Christian. <laughs> He's fake. Now, John here clearly connects our assurance of salvation to the evidence of a changed life. And that scares a lot of people, especially people that have weak consciences and easily condemn themselves. And these are really scary verses for folks who struggle with that. I've been one of those people, so I get scared by verses like that easier than the average Joe. But they're there and they're true. And maybe putting a little holy fear in us isn't such a bad thing. Because it, it makes us trust in Christ more. It keeps us running back to him. That faith that just won't die just keeps on going back to Jesus. Like it's supposed to. John's teaching that if we see a growing habit of obeying God and loving our brothers in our lives, then we can know we're really in Christ. But we saw earlier that such love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so we see again that the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our lives is evidence that we're genuine believers and therefore is a solid foundation of assurance of salvation. This concept, though I've put it a little differently, they were right to put it in that statement of faith. It's biblical. Now, thus far, the application, I think, has been pretty obvious for most of us, I should think, but I want to take a few minutes to address some among us who may struggle on this point. Um, First, some among us may struggle with this ground of assurance just as we do the first one because we're battling with some besetting sin and therefore doubt whether the Spirit is genuinely at work in us. A lot of Christians have struggled with that. Um, to those of you who may struggle in this way, I have an important question to ask you. Do you care that you're sinning? Does it bother you? Is there any sorrow for, for your sin at all? Any regret? Are you repentant and asking God for forgiveness and the power to overcome, however much you fail at overcoming? If so, then you are indeed showing the work of the Spirit in your hearts because it is the Spirit who leads us to repentance and sorrow for sin. That's a fruit of the Spirit too. So if you're saying, oh, I just, I, just, I, I, I struggle with this sin, I get over it for a little while, I fall back into it, and sometimes for periods of time, and then I get, and then I get better, and I struggle for a little while, and I just, I can't seem to kick this sin. I must not be a true believer. But the very fact that it bothers you and you're battling it and you're trying to get over this and you're trying to overcome it is evidence that you are a true believer. So the very battle that's making you doubt your salvation is also the very battle that should give you assurance that you're saved. Because you're in the battle. And only see people care about that battle and winning that battle, at least for the right reasons. 
But if, if you find that you don't care that you're sinning, you actually aren't sorry at all, that you have a, an unrepentant heart then, which is a sign of an unbeliever or a false believer. And this is why Jesus taught as he did concerning church discipline. Remember that he commanded that a professing believer was consistently unrepentant. Even after having been confronted with his sins by the whole congregation, he says that person should be treated like a heathen and a tax collector in Matthew 18.17. Why does he say that? Well, the point is, if you're treating them like a heathen and a tax collector, that you're treating that person like he's an unbeliever. Despite his profession of faith, you're treating him like he's an unbeliever, Jesus says. You're supposed to treat him like an unbeliever. Why? Because that's what he's acting like. Because the mark of an unbeliever is an unrepentant heart. And by the way, there's only one sin for which church discipline is ever done in the end, and that's unrepentance. If a believer comes to you and you repent, Jesus says, or you go to a believer who's sinning and he repents, you've gained your brother, Jesus says. And if he doesn't, you bring one or two others with you. And the implication is if he repents, you've gained your brother. It doesn't matter what the sin is. If he repents, you've gained your brother. And if you, but if then if he still doesn't listen, you bring him through the church. The implication, if he repents, you've gained your brother. He's proven to be real. If he still refuses to repent, the only option you have now is to treat him like what he's acting like, which is an unbeliever. But the sin that he's being treated for, he's being disciplined for here, isn't the sin that initially was confronted. It's unrepentance. Whatever the sin was, all that needed to happen was repentance. So Jesus says an unrepentant heart, he's teaching us, an unrepentant heart is an unbelieving heart. And when you see a professing believer with an unrepentant heart, you must treat them like they're not a believer. No matter what sin the sin is. If they don't repent. Now even then, when you do that, they're still, you're still holding out hope that repentance will follow. That's the point of that discipline. It's, it's to wake the person up to, to what they're acting like. To make them see the truth. That they're acting like an unbeliever and therefore they should be treated like one. And if they really are a true believer, the idea is maybe that will be the thing that will snap them out of their doldrums, right? And bring them uh, back to repentance and show that they're a true believer after all. So the hope of church discipline is always to restore people, not just to get rid of people. But in the process, we do weed out some false believers and that's good to get rid of them from the body. We can't pretend that false faith is true faith. That's a terrible thing to do. So I got into that to say that the issue here is whether or not there's any repentance in your heart. And if there's repentance in your heart, you're a true believer. However much you're battling the sin, you have to keep repenting of. My, my advice to you is keep on repenting. And as you're doing it, thank God that he saved you. And that... And that the concern you have for your sin comes from him. Praise him for that. Thank him for that. Maybe you'll have even more victory. If you're such a person who persists in sin without repentance, though, or is lacking the fruit of the Spirit, then I implore you to do as Paul said to the Corinthians, to examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. 
Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. That's a scary verse in the Bible, and it's there for a reason. Secondly, some among us may struggle with this ground of assurance, not because we don't show the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, but because we do not see ourselves as having had a dramatic change in our lives. For example, there may be many here this morning who've grown up in a believing home, and they may not even remember a time they haven't believed in Jesus. I think my son Joshua would tell you that about his life. You may not remember a time you, you didn't believe in Jesus. You always knew that you should trust him. You always knew that you should repent of your sins. You always knew that you should obey your parents. You, and you sort of always tried to do that. And somewhere along the line, it dawned on you, you really do believe in Jesus. You really have trusted him as your Savior. And you're not even sure when that happened. You just know that it, that it has somehow happened. And you do trust in Christ. And you have expressed that maybe to your parents um, when you were younger, or maybe even for a young person now, maybe you recently did that. And, and, um, and then you hear about these other Christians that have these radical change of life, and you wonder, that hasn't happened to me. And I, didn't, I haven't been on the Damascus road with Paul. Maybe, maybe I'm not a true believer. So I've, met, I've met believers like that. And to you I would say, um, Thank God that he delivered you from all that sin that you could have been in. Because You know what that's evidence of? Salvation. <laughs> the fact that he's kept you from that sin <laughs> is evidence that he's been at work in your heart for a long time. And that he prevented you from going the way so many other people did. And that he put you in a godly home in order to be prevent that from happening because he had a plan to save you and to keep you from all of that his plan was just different for for you than it was for some other people that's all but it took the same power of the holy spirit to save you and keep you from the sin that you didn't fall into although you know you've had your own it took the same power Power of the Holy Spirit to do that for you that it did to take somebody who was a drunk and a philanderer and maybe a thief and to turn their life around. It took the same miracle. It took the same work of the Holy Spirit. So be encouraged. You have your evidence. And don't compare yourself to the testimony of anyone else. Compare yourself to the Word. What it says about the work of the Spirit and be glad that it's true of you. And praise him that he, that he saved you from the heartache some of us had to go through. Praise him for that. He's kept you from that life. And glory be to his name for doing so. The odd thing is that some of us on the other side of it envy you. We kind of wish we had it your way. We'd have liked to avoid it all heartache that our sin got us into. But then we realize that that's wrong too. We should all appreciate God's plan and grace in our lives. Maybe I was a tougher nut to crack. I don't know. Thankfully, there's yet one more foundation of assurance that works together with the other two. And that is, thirdly, the witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
And the key passage that teaches this concept is found in Romans. Although 1 John 4.13 might, might indicate the same. I'm going to focus on Romans 8.16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, I believe that Paul is indicating here that in some mysterious and miraculous way, the Holy Spirit can communicate assurance to our hearts directly. But it's, it's important to remember that although he may do this in addition to the first two grounds of assurance, he'll never do it in spite of them. So, that is to say, although I would not want to restrict the Spirit's work to applying the promises of salvation to our hearts and to giving us the fruit that is indicative of his presence in our lives, I can say with certainty, based on our study thus far, that he typically works in conjunction with these two means of assurance and then he will never work in such a way as to undermine them. The Holy Spirit will never contradict himself. So, for example, if I meet a man who claims to be a true believer, but who denies, say, the deity of Christ for his resurrection from the dead, then I know he's not a true believer, even if he claims that the Holy Spirit has given him assurance that he is. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't contradict himself. The Holy Spirit doesn't assure someone he's a believer without having given that person faith in Christ. It just doesn't happen. For example, um, consider the case of a man who persists in sin without repentance and perhaps even claims that his sinful behavior is actually righteous, yet also claims that the Holy Spirit has given him assurance of salvation. You ever met anyone like that? I'll give you a big example these days. The so-called gay Christian is a prime example of that. They do this very thing. They persist in sin, and then they call it a godly thing. And, and then in the next breath, they tell us they know they're believers because the Holy Spirit gives them assurance, maybe. And our response to that should be, that can't be true. Because the Holy Spirit says that's a sin. He can't be assuring you it's good. You are mistaken about that. You are self-deceived about that. And if you want me to believe you're a true believer, the next thing you'll do is repent of that sin instead of telling me that it's holy and good when it's evil and wicked. So our, our reply should be to show such a person all the passages inspired by the Holy Spirit that teach that assurance is connected to faithfulness and that that person's life is what John would call a pattern of unfaithfulness and John would call that person a liar based on what we read in 1 John. And so should we. So should we. The person will say to us, well, you don't know my heart. No, I don't. I only know what you say and you do and what it reveals of your heart. And I only know that the Bible says someone like you isn't a Christian. Or at least I'm supposed to presume you're not a Christian. Not really. And then you'll seem harsh and unloving to them. They'll say you're harsh. They'll say you're unloving. You Christians are so judgmental and unloving if you say something like that. And your response will be, no, 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 no. The most loving thing I could ever do for you is tell you the truth. Even if you hate me for it. That's love. 
I'm willing to sacrifice my relationship with you for your sake. That's how much I love you. That's real love. Don't let the world's idea of what loving is determine the truth for us. We know what real love is. Jesus has shown it to us. Read it on the pages of the gospel. He wasn't confronting those hypocrites and calling them snakes because he hated them. That was a loving thing to do. People who claim to have assurance of salvation but who do not believe God's word or who do not show any work of the Spirit in their lives have a false assurance of salvation. And false assurance of salvation is a terrible, terrible thing. Remember what Jesus said about such a person in the Sermon on the Mount. This is in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23 as we come to a close here. This is what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Notice what they're saying. Look what we did. <laughs> that should be a tip-off right there. Jesus says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Not that they were saved and then lost their salvation, which we've seen as an impossibility. He doesn't say, I knew you, then quit knowing you. No, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now we know why John said what he said in 1 John, right? Jesus said it. So we don't, we don't want to have a false assurance. What we want is to have a true assurance of salvation, and this comes through trust in the promises given to us by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. There are many, and they are precious. This comes through trust also in the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our lives, through the evidence of that work in our lives, and also through the witness of the Spirit in our hearts. I'll just conclude by saying uh, with this final point, to keep in mind as we think about these three foundations of assurance, in my view, we must prayerfully give priority to the promises of God's word as we assess our own individual experience, as I began with. And I, I gave you an example in my own life of how assessing my experience by his word transformed everything. Um, I think we need to do that since it's the word of God that has been given to us by the spirit as our objective standard of truth. And since assessing the sanctifying work of the Spirit and His inner witness in our hearts are subjective things that have to be judged in accordance with the Word. Notice how I did that. How do we know about the sanctifying work in the Spirit? All the way through, we were looking to the Word for how to know that. How do I know the Spirit's really assuring me of my salvation? Well, He does it in accordance with His own Word. That's one way. So, I think we have to put the primacy there on the, on the word of God. Nevertheless, all three of these foundations of assurance have to go together, just like that three-legged stool that will not stand or support any weight without all three of its legs, right? So there may be some of you who have struggled with assurance or are struggling with assurance of salvation. Just look to the word and, and remind yourself, God promises he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. 
when God saves someone, he does it right, and he completes the job. And you're in the process of him doing that. It happens on the last day. It happens at the resurrection, ultimately, the finished job. But we're promised it's going to happen. Then look for the indications in your life that the process is happening. I thank you for that. However feeble you think you are, however badly and slowly you think the process may be going, <laughs> if the process is happening, it's happening because the Spirit's at work in your life and you're a true believer. And then pray, pray, and ask the Spirit to help you cry out in faith, Abba, Father. Ask for the Spirit's help to give you a deeper assurance of faith. And he will. He will. Hang in there. You may have to go through more period of time doubting your salvation like I did. I did it for at least three years. It was horrible. I don't wish it on anyone. There's probably not much more a pitiable person than a person who's truly saved but doubts it. It's a horrible place to be. Unless it's where you need to be to eventually come to a deeper assurance than you could have ever, ever had otherwise. Which is what I found to be true. I wouldn't trade those years of depression for anything. Without them, I wouldn't be here. Don't resent what God's doing in your life through the trials that you have. Don't resent the struggles with assurance that you have. If they're a part of his plan to bring you to the end of yourself and give you the greatest assurance you could ever know. Just keep trusting him. And he'll see you through. He loves you. Believe it. Let's pray. Holy Father, I know this has been a, a, a fairly lengthy sermon, and, but I hope it's been a, a helpful one to everyone. I've talked about a lot of deep things here and challenging things. I've said some things in a sermon on assurance that could scare people and even lead them to question their assurance if these things aren't true about them. But that, too, is a good thing because it can lead us back to you and to repentance. Any one of us in this room can walk out of here with assurance if we but look to Jesus anew, if we recognize we need the gospel every day and we just trust in Jesus anew. We can be sure that that sincere faith didn't come from us, it came from you as a response to your word being proclaimed. That's evidence of true salvation. I pray people will walk out of here today encouraged. But if there is any false believer among us who, who's been exposed by your word this morning, I pray that he or she will get real with you and quit pretending and repent of that sin and trust you and find the same assurance that we can all have in Christ. I ask all these things for your glory and for our good and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ.
Amen. As always, I really do thank you for your kind attention.